Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. For this episode, we're going to share with you the audio of our recent live event with Drew G.I. Hart. Drew is professor at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, and the author of the book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. We talked with Drew about the themes of this book and had an excellent conversation with our audience. Yeah, it was great to have Drew in the sandbox, and his story is an important challenge for us to take a serious look at the world around us, hopefully to break down some of the issues that we face. The racism that we don't even realize is right in front of us, and even in our churches. This is such a crucial conversation for us to be having in these days where issues of racism are all around us, and they're constant. We hope this podcast is helpful and can be just even a small part of the solution. And with that... Here's our live event. Enjoy. So good to have everybody here, and it's so good. It's my honor. It's my privilege to be able to introduce uh, Professor uh, Drew Hart. Uh, Drew comes to us all the way from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's a theologian. He's an activist. He's a blogger. He's the author of uh, The Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Races, and the book happens to look like this. It's, we have a stack of them over there for our in-house guests. Buy them and buy lots of them. Buy one for yourself. Share with a friend. Go on Amazon.com. Buy some more. It's, uh, it's all there, and I, and I highly recommend it uh, for anybody who is uh, uh, looking to dive deeper into the conversation that we have, have tonight. Uh, Professor Drew is at uh, Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. He is, uh, his, his blog is hosted by Christian Century. He speaks regularly at, at churches, universities, and seminaries around the country, and this is his first time joining us in the sandbox. So with that, let's welcome Professor Drew Hart. Good evening. Uh, pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be in Rochester and, um, and to be having conversations around race and racism. Sometimes when we have these kind of conversations, um, I'm always curious if people are going to show up because these are the kind of conversations where people sometimes avoid at all costs. And so grateful that you all are here and to have um, conversations around race and racism. And particularly uh, for us to uh, be thinking about it, I, I like to think about the church and its own engagement on these subjects and expanding its own understandings and frameworks of what we mean when we even talk about race and racism. And so that's what I hope we can do, spend a little time doing today. So I uh, periodically get uh, a lot of questions with um, local faith leaders in my own area. Um, many times pastors want to pick my brain and ask me questions and kind of process things. And so I can't always do all of them, but every now and then I try my best to kind of connect with folks um, when I'm able to. And so on one particular occasion, this was a few years back, even before I wrote my book, uh, I a uh, pastor, he was a white 30-something pastor, kind of a younger, trendy church, you know, um, and they were kind of growing fast, and he reached out to me and wanted to have a conversation and get to know me better and share stories, so we met. We met halfway. It was a, a summer and um, hot day, and we met at a McDonald's in the middle of the afternoon, and so there we were, and we're swapping stories and sharing our experiences, and we're drinking sweet teas from McDonald's, if you all know the dollar sweet teas. Um, I always joke, so I'm from the north, but 
but I always joke about like loving southern sweet tea and you know you're having like the real stuff when the sugar's gritting through your teeth, right? <laughs> you got a cavity while you're drinking and then you know you've really enjoyed yourself. And so, um, so that's what's going on. We both had sweet teas and we're kind of just sharing stories and we had a lot of folks um, that we didn't even realize that we had in common between each other in terms of friends and acquaintances. And so it was just a good time. And also just sharing some, uh, some of our life experiences, right? Some of them similar, some of them very different than one another. And as we went and as we talked, um, uh, we just shared and kind of grew in an understanding. And then partway through, my friend there, he, he grabs one of these sweet tea cups and he puts it between us. And he's like, Drew, kind of having like a little serious moment. Drew, you see this cup? You see on one side of the cup, there's a logo, and on the other side of the cup, there's some writings, and you can't see what's on my side of the cup, and I can't see what's on your side of the cup, and so I need you. I need your eyes to see my side, to see on your side of the cup, and you need my eyes to see on my side of the cup, and, and so we're kind of having like this nice little PBS moment, right? You know, it's kind of nice, you know. And so um, I was like, oh, that's really kind. You know, he's kind of talking about how we need to share and swap stories, kind of like what we were doing. Um, so after he was done, I said, you know, that was really nice, but you know, life doesn't actually work like that. Like, I mean, that's, we all should be uh, sharing stories, but, but that's not going to solve racism. And you, to be honest, I already know what's on your side of the cup. That's what I told him. <laughs> and then I explained what I meant. I said, look. When it comes to race, like I grew up, even in all black neighborhoods, I had mostly white teachers. I had to learn about Eurocentric history and art and literature. Um, as I went off to college, I mean, I was the only young black male on my floor. I had to navigate all the kind of different cultures and worlds that were going on. Even the work that I do today as a professor and speaker, like I couldn't do what I do without understanding and having processed what white people are thinking sometimes as they're staring at me, speaking to them, right? And so I got to make sense of these things. And so I've often had to navigate these white dominant cultural spaces throughout my entire life. Um, I've had to learn these things. And I said, because my friend, he was an inner varsity press author, doing well, travels around himself some. And I said, I was like, look, you can never step foot in the black community. You could go your whole life not know anything about black intellectual thought, art, literature, trends, music, culture, any of that stuff, and you're going to be just fine. You can just stay bubbled off in white dominant cultural space, peers, networks, all of that, and that's not going to change or impact your life at all, right, in terms of him being able to do what he does. Um, and so what I wanted to help him see at that point was that Race isn't just a cultural exchange program, right? Solving race is more than just an, a cultural exchange program. Because if we just think of it in those terms, we're not being honest and we're not paying attention to the power dynamics that lay behind all these things. So that what, what history and art and literature gets taught in school and all those things have huge histories and power dynamics that, that we've got to unpack to be honest about trying to solve these problems. And so as good as well intended as he was in terms of his, his idea of you know, just sharing stories and we needing each other, it's just dishonest that, that in many ways it's much more complex and we have to pay attention to how race actually functions in our society and we have to have a better framework of how that actually uh, impacts our everyday lives. And so that's hopefully some of what we can spend a little bit of time doing today. So I, I always like to bring really deep thinking philosophers into the <laughs> conversation, so I figured we'd start with Chris Rock. 
Um, so Chris Rock, he has this quote. I'll just read it. Uh, he says, uh, this is about reframing conversations on race. He says this. So to say Obama is progress is saying that he's the first black person that is qualified to be president. That's not black progress. That's white progress. There's been black people qualified to be president for hundreds of years. The question is, you know, my kids are smart, educated, beautiful, polite children. There have been smart, educated, beautiful, polite black children for hundreds of years. The advantage that my children have is that my children are encountering the nicest white people that America has ever produced. Let's hope America keeps producing nicer white people. His point though, right, is sometimes we think that progress, especially when we're talking about racial progress, is really about um, black people improving themselves and people of color broadly improving their lives and stuff. But what we're not paying attention to is that we live in a society that has 400 years of white people controlling and dominating this society, organizing the society, and therefore deeply shaping the lived experiences of people of color in our society as well. And so the difference between what my kids are growing up in and what kids grew up in in 1850 only has to do, for the most part, has more to do um, with how white people are organizing society than it does with their own gifts, talents, and um, pursuits and dreams. So in um, the 1940s, there was something called the Clark-Dahl experiments. Anybody familiar with the Clark-Dahl experiments? A couple people are. Um, often taught, especially in psychology classes, you'll hear about the Clark-Dahl experiments. Pretty popular during the Civil Rights Movement. They kind of looked at that to help kind of argue for the desegregation of schools. What was interesting about the Clark-Dahl experiments is that they, uh, they would take one child at a time, in this case only black and white, but they would sit them down one at a time and have a white doll and a black doll, and they'd ask them a series of questions. Which doll is the pretty doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? Which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Um, and so they asked these questions to kind of, kind of process and make sense of the answers that were given. Most people were not surprised by um, what these white children were saying in the 1940s at that particular time. It's not, we don't remember and pay attention to, the, uh, to that particular study because of the white children's answers. We probably can all guess what they said, right? That everything white was good, everything black was bad, right? And so there was this kind of uh, racial hierarchy that they had internalized because of the society that they lived in, in which they saw whiteness as positive and good and blackness as bad and negative, right? And so we're not shocked by that per se. Why people were more interested in that study was the black children and their responses. Now, the common, oftentimes, the framework that people think of is, you know, reverse racism. That's the real problem that we got to respond to. Um, but what they found was something very different than reverse racism. They asked them the same questions. Which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? Which doll is the, um, the beautiful doll? And, and the black children, many of them, had internalized the same racial hierarchy, right? So when they asked them which doll is the ugly doll, and they pointed to the black doll. And when they asked them which one is the, you know, the good doll, they pointed to the white doll, right? And, and after all these questions were given, and then they'd ask them which doll looks most like you? And after they've given all these negative answers about the black doll, they point to the black doll, right? These dolls look just the same other than the, the color of their skin, right? And so they had internalized a racial hierarchy in which whiteness was also, for them, 
positive and good and everything right in the world, and blackness was also negative. Um, and so one of the things that's important for us to think about when we're talking about race is that we're not just talking neutrally about just racial historical way in which race developed in our country that made particular justifications and arguments that shaped the way that all of us as human beings perceive and see the world, right? It's about seeing and being seen in the world. And so to be human, in a society with 400 years of white supremacy shaping its, its life is going to impact everybody, right? And so we have to pay attention then not only to just the idea of race, but that within the idea of race itself, there's a particular ideology or worldview or framework of racial hierarchy that, that imagines and helps, it, it, it gives us a lens in which we all see whiteness as positive, and, and there's a, uh, I guess you could say a, a laddering, right? Uh, uh, of color, coloration, so that in any community, almost globally, right, you can go and you can see that the lighter you are, the more positive it's seen, and the darker you are, um, the negative, and you can see that in, on every single continent in our country, and a persistent anti-blackness, especially within that, that's global as well. So, when, if we're going to have really meaningful conversations on race and racism, um, one of the things that we have to do is just begin to just uh, clarify what we even mean when we use particular words, particularly racism. It's such a hot word, right? People get very defensive. You say someone, something is racist and people get very defensive and, and, and it sometimes shuts down conversations and oftentimes people don't even mean the exact same thing when they say racism. Oftentimes we're meaning different things and so what I found is that there's at least two main definitions that are kind of floating around and, and sometimes we're just miscommunicating in terms of what we actually mean when we say racism. So on one hand, I'd say that there's what I call the thin definition, which is um, what we see, I would call it the English dictionary definition of racism, right? And what I mean by that is the first definition that you might find often um, in an English dictionary, which is, you know, personal preju prejudice or hatred from one person, individual, to another individual, right? And so that's kind of what I think a lot of people mean when they talk about race and racism. Um, they're talking about personal prejudice from one individual to another individual. That's one way of talking about it, and I think that's the most common or, uh, way that most people think about what racism means for them. But um, if you were to go, let's say, to a sociology department, particularly those who study in the field of critical race theory, right, you're going to have a much more thicker, robust definition of racism that's not just so focused on individuals, right? And so in a, uh, the sociological definition, uh, this thicker definition, is looking not at individuals, right, not at matters of the heart that, that nobody can see and understand, they're looking at widespread patterns, right, all throughout society. They're looking at how racism is a way that it, it actually uh, organizes our society and structures our lives. The, they're looking at the widespread patterns throughout our society. They're looking at how our, our lived experiences are being shaped by all these things. They're, they're looking at the history for why racism developed in the first place. What was its function? What social and political work was it doing, right? And so just a much broader, thicker framework. And I think when we can move from a, a, a thin definition to a thicker definition, we actually, actually begin to understand and things actually make much more sense in terms of what's going on around us. Um, but if we focus solely on thin definitions, um, like 
who knows what's going on in somebody else's heart, right? That's, that's, none of us know that other than the person themselves. And that almost distracts and misses the point, right? Um, when we can't actually see the bigger picture of what's happening all around us in society. And so I think for us to be aware, number one, that we're sometimes people are meaning very different things. One is individual prejudice and the other one is uh, uh, systems and structures and how our society is impacted and organized by race in a broader scale. And those are very two different ways of thinking about race and racism. So this is my own little makeup working definition. I'm always tweaking it a little bit um, just to give you an idea of a thicker definition. So racism is a humanly conducted system, right? We made it up um, that socializes people into their racial identities, biases, and practices, and it organizes our society by race, whether legally or de facto, in a way that structurally justifies advantaging whiteness as a marker for social access and dominance. It explicitly and implicitly distorts people's perceptions and social frameworks so that they view white bodies, practices, cultural productions, traditions, and knowledges as normative, universal, superior, and more valuable than non-white ones, right? And so that's a thicker definition of race and racism that actually explains what's going on broadly in our society and not just trying to guess what's happening in somebody's heart. These are things that are actually measurable, that we, sociologists can show that this is happening, right? And I think that that's a more helpful way of starting our conversations around racism than often where we are at. There was a book that in the early 21st century that talked about um, a racialized society from a Christian standpoint, and I'll just note a couple things that they mentioned. They said that a racialized society is one in which intermarriage rates are low, residential separation and socioeconomic inequality are the norm, our definitions of personal identity and our choice of intimate associations reveal racial distinctiveness, and watch this, where we are never unaware of the race of a person with whom we interact. Uh, in short, and this is its unchanging essence, a racialized society is a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. And so we get this kind of broad sense in which a racialized society impacts all these different areas of our lives. And sometimes, um, again, it's helping us see the bigger picture of our racialized society, not merely trying to think again about the individual hearts and personal prejudice, um, which in some ways, I, I would argue, everybody has prejudice, right? That's a human, uh, human uh, phenomenon that we all participate in. Um, but to what degree are we um, unaware and participating in, a, in, a, in race and how it organizes our society on a large scale and the widespread patterns that shape our lives. And in that sense, I'm just caught up in these historical forces and unaware that we're kind of being puppeted along thinking that we're kind of free agents. So if we're gonna move from a thin definition to a thicker definition, then it also forces us to kind of reflect on some of the ways that we talk about race and racism. I know as somebody that, that does the work of actually engaging, having these conversations quite a bit, it's not strange for me sometimes to hear somebody say, stop playing the race card, right? Um, stop playing the race card, you know, and, and what they mean by that, of course, is that if you uh, interject and talk about race into this particular moment, they're suggesting that, that it's inappropriately being brought up, and so you're playing a race card. Um, and so I, I often thought like, you know, well, sometimes it's worth, you know, discarding somebody's, you know, analogy, and other times it's worth jumping in and, and exploring that idea even further, right? And so I figured with this race card idea, let's jump in further with this idea. And so, you know, one of the things that was kind of frustrating was that usually it was brought up, you know, if let's say, um, 
somebody was shot by the police, um, a, a young black man was killed by the police, and the black communities saying this is wrong, right? This is there's racial injustice going on, and it needs to stop. And then somebody might say, "Stop playing the race card." And for me, uh, it, the irony is, is that oftentimes um, uh, many white people, not all, but many white people are kind of responding to that one solo incident. Well, I think oftentimes black communities and other people of color as well are often, there's a lot more historical memory and a lot more awareness of the widespread patterns that are going on in society, right? So I kind of liken it to uh, a deck of cards, right? If you had a deck of cards and you laid them all out and you looked at them carefully, you'd see that there's some patterns going on, right? You're gonna see four aces, four kings, four queens, four jacks, all that stuff. You kind of make sense of all the different things that are going on. And so you lay it out, you kind of have a big picture of how they all fit together you can kind of put them back in place and and you know the kind of order and how they're patterned together and then you could take any individual card and you know how they fit into the larger whole right it's just kind of a wide-scale pattern um, and 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 I feel like oftentimes in the black community that's often what we see happening right is is that most black people are not merely just saying oh that was a racist moment in and of itself in isolation, there's some historical memory, right, that goes back several generations, right, about um, what has gone on with what their parents have seen, what their grandparents have seen, what their great-grandparents have seen. And not only that, um, but what's going on in one's own community, right? Um, so if I've seen, you know, not only my brothers get harassed and bullied by police, but my friends and my neighbors and all that stuff. It's going widespread all throughout my community. That's going to inform how I see any one individual event, right? And so often what I, I find is that often it's, it's many white people are playing a race card, individual, and we're saying, no, 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 we need to analyze the whole deck because the whole deck is racialized and we see that it's stacked against us, right? And so I think that that is a, a broader framework of seeing much more wide scale what's going on in our society and not just looking at it from an individual standpoint. I remember a few years ago, um, Paula Dean said some terrible things. She was, on, uh, she kind of was just all over on the news, everyone kind of highlighted um, what she had said. And I remember that um, it was intriguing to me just watching what was going on because it seemed like everybody kind of was like, oh, that's just terrible, right? It was almost like the, in uniform, all Americans just kind of wagged their finger at Paula Deen, like bad Paula Deen, right? Bad Paula Deen. Um, and, and at first, you know, I wanted to kind of get into it too, right? Yeah, bad Paula Deen, how terrible, because she she, it was some really ugly things that she said. But then I stepped back, I was like, wait a minute, what's going on, right? It's so easy, all of a sudden, you know, everybody wants to scapegoat racism onto Paula Deen as though like she was like in some lab somewhere and created it by herself, right? <laughs> like she did not create racism. She wasn't some like mad scientist that cooked this up for us, right? No, she, she is a product of communities and history, societies that shaped her. You only can understand Paula Deen in light of American society and history as a whole, right? She didn't plop down out of nowhere, out of a vacuum with these ideas. She was socialized into these ideas, right? And so it's so easy to just isolate and put it onto one individual, a bad Paula Deen, and not take ownership of the fact that we all participate in American society. Now, we're not all necessarily saying those particular things, but we're all participating in society, and so we all have some complicity in what's going on around us, and oftentimes, many of us are not 
actively resistance. We're either just kind of quietly going along or sometimes actively um, perpetuating it, right? Um, but nonetheless, all of us have to, it's too easy to kind of have this cultural reflex where we just kind of scapegoat this one individual person. And then we can kind of feel really good about ourselves. Look at all those bad racists, right? The bad racists, and then there's us, us good people, right? And I think that's too clean. We, it's, too, it's not messy enough, it's not honest enough about the, the ways that all of us participate in society in very real ways. And so while, yes, it is terrible what Paula Dean said, and I sure hope that that's not stuff that any of us will be um, perpetuating, but doesn't, our hands aren't clean yet, right? Um, and so how do we move from just that kind of, again, thin framework to really living lives that are anti-racist and actually resisting these social uh, phenomenons that are going on in our society um, and acknowledging that even when we do that, we're still a part of this society anyway. So one of the challenges uh, for um, combating you know, racism in our society today and being honest about it is that there's this tendency to fall into um, colorblind ideology. Right? Colorblind ideology is basically saying, you know, um, you know, I don't see color, right? Um, I don't, maybe some people here didn't realize I'm a black man that's standing up here <laughs> in the front. Um, but, but some people apparently, they claim that they don't see color, right? They don't, they don't recognize it. They, you know, I'm just American, I just see America, right? Or we all bleed red, that's all I know. Or I'm Christian, so that's all I, I don't see anything else, right? And they all sound really nice, but, but it's, fairly dishonest, right? Of course they see color. What are they talking about? And the problem isn't seeing difference, right? Um, the diversity of our skin tones and all that thing, that's not the problem um, that we need to deal with. Um, the problem is, is the racism, right? The way that we've organized our lives and the way that it, that it benefits some and harms others, right? That's what we need to be paying attention to. And so often I say, it's not, uh, it's not a uh, race that you're blind to, right? It's that you're not seeing uh, racism, right? That's what people are missing and not seeing how it's shaping our lives all around them. But the irony of colorblind ideology is that many people, many um, sociologists have found that many people who espouse uh, colorblind ideology in many ways are actually living extremely racially distinct lives, right? So there's this kind of hypocrisy going on that people aren't even aware of in their own lives. So even with good intentions, right? I'm colorblind, I don't see color. And then all their social networks are, are white, they go to church, white and white neighborhoods, they send their kids to all white schools, go to you know, where they shop, everything, right? Even down to like, you look at someone's bookshelves and most people in America, their bookshelves are racially distinct based on their own racial demographic group, right? And so in big ways and in very little ways, all of a sudden we can begin to see how racially distinct our lives actually are um, and that all of us, much, probably much more than we would like to admit, are participating in racialized societies, right? In these racialized patterns. In some ways you could say our lives are racially managed um, without us even having realized it, that all of a sudden we wake up one day and, and race has deeply shaped and stained our lives in really meaningful ways that we need to begin to acknowledge. And so, a lot, aside from the fact that color, this kind of colorblind ideology is just, it's just not true and it's not helpful and it's not honoring of the diversity that exists, um, but it's also just, it's cover, it's putting our, it's, we're lying to ourselves and we're not able then to actually begin to live differently even in our own lives if we're going to be so stuck on this idea of racism. And so I think um, 
we've seen that that is one of the huge barriers in even having real converse, meaningful conversations around race and racism in our society today is this uh, denial of, of one's own participation in our racialized society. So I, um, I went to Messiah College and then afterwards for four years I was a youth pastor and also worked at an after school program there in the city. Um, and there was a particular neighborhood I lived in called Allison Hill, which is a mostly poor black and brown community. And um, for the most part, there's some white people that live there, but not a lot of white people. And especially when you get into like the heart of Allison Hill, like there's very few white people. White people don't even like driving through Allison Hill. Um, and so the only, usually the only white people that you see in that neighborhood are like very poor white people. This neighborhood was once at one time white and had changed over. Um, and so they're kind of like the white people that could not get out. So one particular day I dropped, I hopped into my little 92 Mercury Sable as my first car. You know, your first love, you love your first car. So I drive into my Mercury Sable and I'm kind of going through the heart of um, Allison Hill on Market Street and towards 14th, like it's a really poor neighborhood right there. Again, where you usually don't see many white people at all. And this particular day, I see like a whole bunch of white people. I'm like, what in the world is going on? You know, like they're just a huge mass of white people. And, and I noticed like really quickly, like they all got like these really yellow shirts on. They want to be seen and they're doing a good job at it. Everyone is seeing them. They got these flat, this flatbed truck and they're handing out groceries to everybody that's going on. I almost stopped to just get me a grocery bag because it seemed like they're just indiscriminately giving it to everybody, you know, like you get a bag, you get a bag, everybody, you know, everybody gets a bag, right? Look under your chair, right? And so, so there I am kind of looking and kind of thinking like, oh, it's probably just silly church folk that we just don't do things very wise, you know, not the best way of distributing resources, but whatever, you know. Then I get a little closer, and then all of a sudden things weren't funny anymore, because then I saw what was on their shirt, and I saw that it said, Harrisburg Invasion. Harrisburg Invasion. They were going to invade our neighborhood, right? Like normally you think, you know, this kind of like savior complex, you know that it happens, right? That, that people have these kind of savior complexes, but usually you don't like put that as like the motto. <laughs> but, but there they thought that they, that poor black and brown folk were just helplessly waiting around for them to kind of show up and do their drive-by ministry, right? For 24 hours and then be gone again. And it's, you know, I, I often think like, you know, what might have happened had they been willing to kind of not see themselves as in kind of like a hierarchical position where they had everything to give and nothing to gain, right? What might have happened had they uh, switched positions where they became followers of leaders that were already existed in that neighborhood that were doing great work in that community? Just amazing stuff back then and still today amazing stuff that they could have come alongside of. Maybe they might have said, we don't need your money, we don't need your groceries, but we need some folks to, to serve and to be mentors for our program, right? I don't know, who knows what would have happened, but the opportunity never came because they never reached out to local leadership. They kind of did their drive-by ministry, they showed up, and then they were gone again. And of course, like, I always have to check myself and say, like, look, these folks had good intentions. These are not like, you know, this is not... 1850, not coming in here enslaving people. This is not 1950, this is not a segregation system. Um, these folks had good intentions. 
They wanted to do good. I'm confident that their intentions were really good, right? And yet, the, the crazy thing is that in all of those good intentions, the racial hierarchy still existed, right? It never got subverted. So even in that, they still saw themselves and interacted with this black and brown community in a position of hierarchy. And I think it, it helps us realize that our good intentions aren't good enough if we're not going to get to the root of things, right? To get to the real root of things and subvert the racial hierarchy itself. Because so long as the racial hierarchy exists, then we're not really solving the problem of racism, right? And so... Um, Good intentions can just as easily perpetuate these um, hierarchies that exist in our society. So I just want to kind of end with this thought around uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. And, and I, was, uh, I want us to think about the idea that, you know, this idea of nonconformity and transformation as it relates to two areas of our lives, both our minds, that we have renewed minds, but also then transformed in terms of our embodiments, right? that we need to have new ways, I mean, because race, it, it shapes our perceptions of how we know and see and are seen in the world, right? It, it's, it presents a lens and a framework over our, our eyes and our minds that need to be renewed. We need new ways of seeing one another and thinking, new frameworks um, that aren't tainted and distorted by the ones that we're just kind of socialized into. But then just more than that, though, like, we have to take seriously our embodiments in the world. We actually have to think that that actually, that what we do with our bodies actually matter, right? That who, where we place our bodies, who we place our bodies alongside of, what, where our body, what spaces our bodies go into and what spaces our bodies do not go into, all of those things actually matter, right? That, that when people are gathering and speaking and, and addressing issues that, where are we, is our body on the couch or are we showing up, right? All of those things, our actual embodiment in the world and what we do with our bodies, where we place our bodies and whose bodies we place our bodies alongside of, all of those things actually matter. And especially as the church, if we're going to be transformed and, and non-conforming in the world, given these racialized patterns that are pervasive, right? And I, we could have spent all kinds of time looking at actual stats, right? Um, if we're going to be non-conformist in that kind of world, this racialized world that we live in, then we need to have renewed minds and also um, have a new kind of embodiment that is transformed in the world. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sandbox Cooperative Live event with Drew Hart. Be sure to check out the bonus episode with questions from the evening as well. Until next time, we'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. <laughs>